in this election, you can't reward um, the political hacks in the Liberal Party who've departed so far, they've gone so far to the left. Um, you know, you can't reward that. And simply saying, well, they're better than Labor, that doesn't cut the mustard. There right. will be no change. So I think you put forward a compelling argument for at least in this election, people to look at the alternatives. Yeah. I think that's really, really important because they're not worthy. Um, they're not worthy of our support in the current time uh, because they haven't stood up on so many issues. I mean, we've been talking business. They haven't talked. They haven't stood up on freedom. Um, Hundred percent. You right. go. You go to their website again. That statement of principles. Mm. It's it's laughable the way that they have all allowed uh, these terrible draconian. Uh, COVID restrictions yes. to, to be weighed through. But the fate of sitting members depends on electors in the cities and those who come many miles and by varied forms of transport to vote in outlying booths in country towns. Still in New South Wales, they can quench their thirst as hotels are open for the first time on election day. Okay, so let's talk about um, the Liberal Party first. Uh, you're very familiar with the Liberal Party. Um, it's uh, the case that lots and lots and lots of right-wing voters uh, would find it hard to think of voting for anybody other than the Liberal Party. That anybody other than the party right of centre with the best chance of forming government deserves a vote at all. So for the rusted on Liberal voter who's not necessarily party loyal but just has, you know, they're a sophisticated business owner who really believes the only way to benefit their business is to have anybody but Labor in government and therefore can't risk voting for anybody other than the Liberal Party. What do you say to those people? For a start, where are they right about the Liberal Party? What is uh, the, the thing that makes the Liberal Party a deserving home for a vote? Uh, and then what are the problems with that thinking? Well, the Liberal Party, in terms of its statement of values, are right on the money, no pun intended, for people in small business, for private enterprise, because they are about, uh, or meant to be about, you know, uh, protecting the interests of those who, who wish to be self-reliant, um, carve their own way in the world, um, take risks, set, you know, set up a business, employ people, uh, and actually look after their own, you know, financial um, welfare, if I can put it like that. Mm -hmm. um, people who actually want to, um, you know, build something. So that's that's what they're about in terms of their statement of values. Um, my criticism, uh, after being a member for, for many years, is that they're not being true to those values. And, uh, you know, the Labor Party clearly don't get it on that front. Um, and we'll come to them, I assume, in a moment. But, you know, I think over the last probably six or seven years, the coalition have done many things to make life more difficult for small business, medium-sized businesses. Um, they have put in place policies that can easily be dealt with by the top end of town, big corporates, but don't sit well um, in, in small business. And I, I can point to a range of things to do with uh, stuff the ATO has imposed on small business, um, the requirements to use software systems that you know, now you just have to um, do that. Um, the requirement to have company ID numbers, or, or sorry, director ID numbers. Uh, these are, there, there are many just, you know, sort of, it's sort of, it's death by a thousand cuts, just more and more bureaucracy, red tape, 
more empowerment of the federal bureaucracy and its ability to lord it over um, small business. I mean, I'm in the financial services sector, so I declare a, a conflict of interest to the degree that I'm in the sector, but I'm now going to talk about financial advice. You know, you know thanks to this coalition government, um, sort of people who are you know, the less well off in the community now cannot get affordable financial advice. And that's as a result of the, the Banking Royal Commission, which was set up to, to try and actually go after the banks and their practices or bad practices. Instead, what's happened is financial advisors and brokers have been the ones who got it in the neck. Um, and you know, that, that's just another example. Uh, you should be able to get affordable financial advice. People who are less well off of limited financial means are the ones who need advice. They simply can't afford it anymore because mm. of the changes that have been made. And many financial advisors, thousands of them actually have left the financial services sector. So those are just some examples of where I think this, this government has really lost its way. And you know, that's, that's the Liberal Party. Is there a way of, let me, uh, let me just say this as a statement because I won't disguise it as a question. I think the best way to help the Liberal Party is to not be a rusted on supporter of the Liberal Party and to actually be a noisy consumer of the, of the Liberal Party. So as a, as a supporter, like as a business owner, as a, as a father and husband, as a citizen and, and patriot, I want the Liberal Party to be the best they can be. I think they're the party with the best chance of forming government on the right wing. And I want them to be the best possible uh, that they possibly can be. And I think part of the solution to helping them do that is to not just think about the next election, but to think about the next five elections and to essentially teach them a lesson now that they can't take me, my values, my family, my business for granted or my support or my donations. And therefore, they will lose that support uh, when they don't earn it. Uh, when they don't perform to a standard. And so I actually feel like it's the most helpful thing to do um, to, to cut them off like a recalcitrant adolescent who's just abusing mum and dad's mm. generosity. It's like you're cut off, grow up, take some responsibility for yourself and come back and see us because we'll love you for a long time. I think it's a very powerful idea, David. Um, and I guess I, I, I almost agree, but I sort of can't because I'm now with the Liberal Democrats. And, and frankly, I'm over the Liberal Party and the Liberal National Party. Uh, I want uh, the Liberal Democrats to be the party who now champion the appropriate values uh, on the right of politics, uh, particularly about small government and support for, for private enterprise. So, you know, make no mistake, they're my political enemy. So I, I, I declare that. Mm. But in terms of for people who perhaps you know, don't want to support the Liberal Democrats always, I mean, I, you know, that, that would be part of my pitch, though, as well, that in this election, you can't reward um, the political hacks in the Liberal Party who've departed so far, they've gone so far to the left. Um, you know, you can't reward that. And simply saying, well, they're better than Labor, that doesn't cut the mustard. There right. will be no change. So I think you put forward a compelling argument for at least in this election, people to look at the alternatives. Yeah. I think that's really, really important because they're not worthy. Um, they're not worthy of our support in the current time uh, because they haven't stood up on so many issues. I mean, we've been talking business. 
they haven't talked, they haven't stood up on freedom. Um, 100%. You, right. go, you go to their website again, that statement of principles, mm. it's, it's laughable the way that they have all allowed uh, these terrible draconian uh, COVID restrictions to, yeah. to be waved through. And also then things uh, to do with electronic surveillance of Australians and uh, digital, proposed digital identity legislation and uh, ACMA censoring um, fake news. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's misinformation. Just, oh, misinformation and who defines that? Yeah. So there are many, many problems there. The chief source of it, as yeah. it turns out, yeah. Facebook and uh, big parties. Uh, let's talk about, so with your political commentary hat on, let's talk about the National Party as a mm -hmm. brand. Uh, do you st see any distinctions from them as a member of the coalition if somebody's possibly choosing a National Party member versus a Liberal Party member? Do their statement of values, their policies, um, their runs on the board actually inspire any more confidence? Well, I think that the National Party have tended to stand up more for their traditional base over the last few years. They could have done a lot more. They should have done a lot more. But to, to try and be fair about this, they have made uh, their points known. They have taken stands on issues um, where, you know, the, the Liberal Party uh, party room haven't been prepared to do that. So I, I give, I give the, Nas the National Party brownie points for that. Although, if we're looking nationally, we're talking nationally. Absolutely. Um, in New South Wales, I scratch my head at where the, the New South Wales Nats have gone. I think they're a, a very strange mm. beast these days. I mm. mean, some of the stuff they've supported in the state parliament, quite left-wing legislation on social issues, mm. um, I, I, I just don't understand how the rank and file of the Nats would, would, would get behind that. They must be really wondering as well. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it was interesting, you know, in, in recent times I've had uh, occasion to, to have uh, some detailed conversations with Bob Catter. Um, and, you know, Bob makes a number of important points about the way that uh, we've not got the best outcome on international trade agreements. I mean, a lot of people, you know, dismiss Bob because he's, he's colourful and he's out there. But, you know, at the heart of it, he makes really important points on things that the National Party should have done a better job in standing up on, uh, to, to do with, obviously, with agriculture. Yep. What was the claim that Pauline Hanson made about Lib Dem immigration policy? And what's the truth of the record? Mm, well, Pauline Hanson made a claim that uh, somehow we believed in some free-for-all uh, in terms of immigration, and that's not the case. Uh, we believe in um, a larger Australia. We believe in um, the benefits of immigration. Personally, having been a mayor and a premier, I think we need to ensure that we bring in skilled people uh, and indeed unskilled people in some occasions. And we also, though, have to do that in a way that is planned. So far... Far too much of the immigration picture has been people coming to the major cities and then huge demands on infrastructure and services, which has caused significant you know, pain and growing, growing pressures. And that's because it's just been a bit of a free-for-all. And what happens is the federal government lets people in the door and then the state governments and local governments have to pick up the pieces without necessarily the right funding. Um, we do, though, need to have an immigration pro, uh, program. And you know, one thing, I, I, I'm, I'm bemused, though, 
to this extent about Hanson's comments because if, if she was out listening to people in Queensland across the state, as I have been, and she's, she's, she's clearly out there, but if she's listening to them, she would know from employers they cannot get people at the moment. So in the tours I've been on, Western Queensland, Southwestern Queensland, along the coastal cities, every employer is saying we cannot get both skilled and unskilled people. There are positions vacant. We just cannot fill. Essentially, the, uh, that many of these towns have, you know, um, you know, full employment, um, and and that is causing economic pain now. So, you know, does 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 Pauline Hanson want to shut the border? I mean that. The, the reason, by the way, we've got low unemployment is not due to the genius of Scott Morrison or Josh Frydenberg. It's because for two years of COVID, the border was shut and probably 360 to 380,000 people didn't come to Australia. And now we have a real problem and it will hold us back economically. So there's a level of unemployment which is good because it indicates uh, Employers can find staff. If if we have a zero unemployment, that means there's not enough people out there looking for a job to fill the skilled positions that are, are vacant. Is there some truth in that? Well, I guess at the moment they're, they're getting to to a level of, of unemployment, which is um, uh, you know historically as low as it's been for sort of fifty years, and it, it's unclear as to whether you know, how you actually get those other people who are still in the unemployment queues to, to work. Mm. Um, you know, not, it might be that there's some people who don't want to work, who are more there always uh, inclined is. to be on, always on, on welfare. But yeah. simply what I'm saying is the facts right now are that we need immigration to fill important jobs in the economy, across the economy, whether it be in agriculture or mining, service industries, right across the board, people are crying out uh, in, in business to get these, these employees and they cannot get them. Right. And so I, I don't understand why Pauline Hanson would even sort of throw that uh, sort of criticism at the Lib Dems at the moment in the middle of this campaign because that's the situation on the ground. So and and, and, and it, it, it will, again, it will hold the country back. So we believe in immigration. We believe in a, a planned, structured appropriate immigration program and particularly I believe in using immigration to build up our regional cities and towns. I don't think either Lib Dems or One Nation believe in either closed borders or open borders and so the squabble's probably degrees of difference in the middle. Mm. Um, prior to COVID and, and this experience with closed borders mm. and people not able to come here etc, do you think the immigration balance was about right? A little bit too much or? I think it was too high probably. Too high in gross too, numbers and too, not targeted. Too high in gross numbers and not targeted in terms of where the people were meant to be settled. And it put huge infrastructure demands on our major cities, particularly Sydney, Melbourne, and right. uh, to a fair extent, Brisbane. Um, you know, that that's, that's a fact. Um, you know, we've had, um, you know, very high levels of immigration and it, it means that you know, that, that local government has to build roads and libraries and parks and, you know, all the community infrastructure and similarly the, the state government highway network and public transport systems can be at, at you know, well behind the eight ball in dealing mm. with these new communities. I mean, we've, we've, we've had high, 
high levels of immigration in recent years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it, it, it might have actually seen economic growth, but per, the argument is per capita growth has actually not performed well. Yeah. So far from an open slather kind mm. of mm. approach to immigration, throw the doors open and come you weary and mm. burdened and, and so mm. forth, invitation, you're actually wanting a more sensible approach to immigration that helps employment and doesn't pressure yeah. like, in infrastructure like, like, nationally. Yeah, exactly. And look, government does have important roles. I mean, the Liberal Democrats want less government, but government government should stick to the things that it should be doing. Exactly. Okay? So government doesn't need to try and pick winners in business and the sectors of the economy. Government does have an important planning role and it should be, it should be dealing with that. Yeah. Um, but, but again, I'm really going to make this point. I don't understand why Pauline Hanson, in the context of this current debate, uh, current election and, and the debate, would be raising immigration when there is a definite need right now to bring people in. That's unequivocal. Yeah. Well, she may have misunderstood what your policy was, uh, but we can wait for further clarification from her. Uh, let's talk about One Nation uh, as a right of centre option. Arguably the right-wing minor party that's been around the longest, mm. most established. Um, certainly Senator Hanson's brand is, is well out there. Mark Latham's providing a, a fresh face mm. and appeal to the brand yeah. in, in New South Wales. He's obviously not contesting the federal election. Uh, George Christensen now in their ranks. Um, what do you think are the pros and cons for a, a voter right of centre who's looking for a, a better hope for the future of Australia than the coalition, uh, one nation as an alternative. What are their, their strengths and weaknesses policy-wise? Oh, look, I, I think um, with one nation, what they're offering is on certain key issues or you know, um, sort of lo um, lightning rod issues that you know, people, people know where they stand. So on things like immigration, things like... Uh, you know, the rights of men in terms of um, you know, family law and breakups like that. Uh, I think uh, they're very clear on in their views. Um, it's been a bit different also, though, with Mark Latham, who you mentioned before, because you know, he has brought, uh, I think, a broader perspective to the whole thing. And uh, he, in particular, I think of him as taking a stand at you know, left-wing woke ideology, and that's mm. fantastic. Mm. So that's there. Um, I don't think, though, from what I've seen, there's there's a broad policy agenda that they've actually bothered, bothered to, to publish. You know, I could be wrong, but I certainly haven't seen them promoting it. So I think, you know, that's to me, that's 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 the shortcoming. But as objectively as you can, what are One Nation really great at that deserve a, a support? I think prosecuting sort of issues that resonate with a slice of. Uh, of our community, and they are often important issues. They have been, sometimes I haven't agreed with them. Um, you know, I, I think, for example, uh, Paul and Hanson standing up for men vis-a-vis mm. -vis the family law situation and how they're treated through that process, I think that's been important. Yeah. And it, it needed that balance because, you know, right. it's like that the assumption that, that um, men are always the baddies in a breakup. Um, and the women are the ones that need to be protected. Well, I don't think that's fair or reasonable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, we need balance in our debate. So I think that was a good one. And, you know, there's other things that, that uh, you know, she's championed as well that are important. And 
What would you advise a right of centre voter who values freedom, uh, who values uh, small government? Uh, how would you um, caution them that perhaps um, there are some things about One Nation that might not align with, with everything a right of centre voter is looking for? Well, one of the other things I should applaud as well though about One Nation was that at least Senator Hanson took a stand on vaccine coercion, vaccine mandates, and attempted to introduce legislation. Would you um, have done the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, again, shame on you know, the Coalition and the PM for, for not supporting that. Um, you know, so that was really important. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the cautionary note, though, on, on, on One Nation, what, what bothers me on occasions is the, the, over, the overreach. And, you know, I mean, for example, you know, if we go back in the last few years, I've been concerned about Islamic extremism in, in within Australia, and that needed to be dealt with, and we need to be firm about that. And I think we could continue to be firm about what constitutes the real values of this country. But then the language often that's being used by One Nation and some of the and, and one of the stunts that comes to mind is wearing certain certain uh, outfit into the parliament. I yeah. mean, you know, really, I, I just that, that's not the way I want to see our politics conducted. Now, you know, just to to probably to fight fight her corner for a second though, it, it's hard for a minor party clearly to be to be noticed, mm. and sometimes. You have to do something a bit over the top to, be noticed, to, to make the point. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's an indictment on, on the media. But uh, yeah, I, I wish we didn't have to see things like that. I, I, you know, I, I would like to see... So debate. we won't be seeing Campbell Newman in a burqa anytime soon? I, I don't think so, no. <laughs> but what, what I would like to see in this country is, is the important issues are able to be discussed and dis discussed respectfully. And you know, across the board now, the, the sort of the the abuse and the, the nastiness and the the um, the immediate um, leap to actually characterise someone who you don't agree with as being a bad person—that's uh, anathema to me. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not been fair criticism of, mm. of Pauline. It's yeah. not at all. Look, I, 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 I've I've found her to be reasonable to deal with. Uh, we've always been able to have a, a good conversation. Mm. Um, I've probably only known her for about six or seven years directly, mm -hmm. um, but she's always been you know, good and positive to deal with as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Mm. Let's talk about the Liberal Democrats. Why, when you gave up hope of the Liberal Party, the LNP coalition being redeemable, when you, when you said... That's a futile investment of efforts for a better Australia. Why was Liberal Democrats the party you thought were the most credible alternative? Mm. Well, I guess it's the philosophy uh, because um, I probably had never crystallised my thoughts uh, in this way, but I think I'm actually libertarian. And it's, it's very much, I, in a nutshell, I don't want the government in my life. I don't like Let's government, I don't like bureaucracy, I don't red, like red tape, I don't like being bossed around by, by other people. And, you know, in Australia today, we have a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of people wearing, you know, police uniforms or Australian border force uniforms, etc., etc., who want to tell you what to do. Uh, and they've been given laws by politicians to do just that. 
So that, we, that's, 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 that's a big, it's the philosophy. For those people who are listening who are also libertarian mm. and have never crystallised their thoughts and don't know what that is, let's define the mm. terms because there might be some different interpretations yeah, sure. of what being libertarian means. So to you, what is a libertarian and what would somebody listening or watching mm. um, identify with if they were closer to libertarian than most okay. other philosophies? Well, well, libertarians essentially believe that um, we, we should be free to live our lives uh, in the way that we choose as long as we don't impact on uh, those around us in an adverse way. Uh, and so we, we're, we're for, for small government, we're for, um, we're for uh, individual responsibility, balanced budgets, low debt, um, low taxes. We want people to be able to get on and live their lives. Uh, without interference, and that's very much has resonance with me. So when it comes to the the, the sort of the, the government or fiscal side of the house, it's the things I've just said. When it comes to perhaps some of those social issues, it's well, I, I, I don't I don't have a problem if someone has a different lifestyle to me, um, as long as they don't impact on myself or the broader community in an adverse way. With Libertarianism. What would you think is the the main difference between that and conservatism? Mm. Well, I think it's I think it's on the social side of the house to be upfront about it, and uh, it's you know conservatives you know adopt on a range of specific issues uh, approaches that libertarians wouldn't wouldn't agree with. So, for example, uh, as I've said publicly <coughs> in the past, you know. The issue about the way we deal with with drugs and the whole war on drugs, I think, yep. is a big difference between the libertarians and, and conservatives. So, you know, my, my my view, having been in government, remember, um, is that the war on drugs is lost. It's a nonsense. Um, drugs have never been more uh, plentiful, available, and cheap. Potent. Um, uh, and and yet we we continue to pretend that somehow through law enforcement and uh, prohibition that we can stop this scourge. Yep. We can't. Um, and it is the same. Uh, it, we're going down the same same road as what happened in the United States with prohibition in the twenties, and it didn't work then. What about I mean, the we argument? Could, we could we could talk for we could talk for a long term a long time about that. But yeah. but, no, I'll give, we'll, but I'll we'll I give you another, but can it? I give you another <laughs> aspect of, of this as well? So in Australia today, for example. The TGA has gone out on a bit of a jihad and a few years ago and, and banned Panadine over the counter. Now, Panadine is a codeine-based painkiller pain, pain mm -hmm. that, for most of my adult life, someone who gets a migraine occasionally found very effective in dealing with that pain relief. Now, it's a prescription-only item. Now, this was because they claimed in the TGA there, was, there were people out there who had codeine dependency. So... The many have been hurt because of the actions of a few, and other mechanisms could have put in, put in, put in place to try and you know deal with people who are you know you know stocking up on panadine. Let's. But, but so so they, those are the sorts of things that that's that's crazy stuff. Meantime, we could go around the corner uh, in this part of the world and and probably find, buy some drugs very quickly. Yep, we're in a very rough part of the world. Well, I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> um, 
I want to direct the conversation, and I, and I do want to be efficient and not get bogged down on any mm. one issue, but to, but to tease out the, the heart mm. of these issues with legalising marijuana or the war on drugs more broadly. Um, one of the, I think, good arguments that conservatives offer is that some people have no other moral compass other than the law. And so leaving those recreational behaviours in the criminal code um, is a good signal to send mm. to those people who have no other moral compass. Mm. Um, do you agree on that point? And if so, is there a way to not waste billions of dollars of taxpayer money um, and at the same time not signal to the wider community that as long as they're only harming themselves, they can go ahead? Mm. Well, look, there's just so much in this. It's, I, I, I can't answer that directly very quickly. Um, let me give you an example of San Francisco, and I visited uh, with my wife about three or four years ago. We were horrified to see um, open smoking of marijuana on the streets, uh, and indeed there were parts of San Francisco's central business area which were quite scary in the middle of the day. Now, that's where people have said, well, we're going to legalise this or, or turn a blind eye to it. Um, but they've then actually thrown everything out. It, just because you legalise the substance doesn't mean you then, you then approve unacceptable behaviour. We don't walk down the street with a bottle of scotch sculling from it, uh, nor should people be walking around in the middle of the day smoking dope and doing drug deals on the streets. So let's got, we've got to be very clear about what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, having, having uh, an enlightened view on the, the use of those drugs, but we actually have to have you know, clear laws and social norms about how it impacts on people. So I go back to what I said before about you know, not, ad, not impacting adversely on people. Mm. Well, that's an example of you know, where people are throwing the baby out with a bathwater. They actually have created a, a situation where they've said there's a, there's a free-for-all. And I'm not advocating that. But what I'm, what I'm saying is just the facts that you know, those who want to take drugs in our society right now are. They are, they are, and yep. you know, we pretend otherwise, but you know, we're not. We're not. Um, we often tend to go to uh, stereotypes as well. You know, the, the sort of the, the tattooed, you know, um, young person, you know, from Struggle Street who's sort of taking ice, or the, um, you know, the, the heroin junkie, or whatever. Whereas, if we're actually honest about this, there are the people who have, who are in professional careers who are in their 50s, who their whole adult, adult life, on weekends, they've indulged in marijuana. Or there's, you know, there, there are many young, up-and-coming businesswomen um, in social circles in this city who are, who are well and truly into the cocaine. So, you know, that's happening. And it's happening when it's illegal. And this is what happened with prohibition in the US, in that... Um, the, the law made, by definition, over 45% of Americans lawbreakers as criminals yep. because they were all drinking alcohol, <laughs> you know. It, it, was, it was easier to get a, get a drink in Prohibition by... Sorry, it was easier to get a drink in New York during Prohibition than it was when it was repealed because once you, once you legalised alcohol, 
taxed it, regulated it, controlled it, had responsible service of alcohol, licensing laws, etc. It was all controlled again. So that's that's the flip side to what you put to me. There's a heck of a lot in this. And, and if anybody who ever wants to really look at this and see what I'm saying should go and watch. There's a very good series that was done uh, on Prohibition, a three-part documentary uh, that's out there by uh, the guy who made the American Civil War um, documentary many years ago, which okay. was, you know, well, um, very, very well recognised and applauded. But fascinating story, Prohibition, and great parallels with, with what we're seeing today. My final point is this. Prohibition doesn't work. Just doesn't work. On that point, I agree with you. Mm. Um, I, and I think the solution is nuanced and complicated mm. and requires a lot of testing and measuring. We need to, uh, not recklessly, but experiment and, and see what policies have a desired outcome and, and what policies are futile. And, and can, can I, by the way, make this important point? As a Premier of this state, Queensland, I took a huge, aggressive law enforcement stance mm. that actually kicked criminal motorcycle gangs who were the manufacturers and distributors of drugs, mainly ICE, in Queensland. And what happened? Crime went down 15 to 20%. What's happened today? They're back. And, They're out and there. And crime is proliferating in this exactly, state. Exactly, exactly. So Petty crimes. So, so yeah, exactly. So that, that's, that's why the crime rates went down yeah. when we, when we jumped Let's on that. talk so, about that. That's so, probably so, your so, most... So I, I, say to, I say to people going, Newman's lost the plot here. Well, hang on. You know, I gave it a red-hot go. What did the rest of you do? Yeah. Yeah, what did you all do? Yeah. <laughs> Just like, you know, where, where, is, where is your, you know, if you're so much into we want to deal with drugs, yeah. well, well, well sh show, me, a, show me the community resolve. It's a worthwhile point to differentiate between libertarian and libertine. Libertine mm. is anything goes, if it feels good, do it. Thank you, um, thank you. And libertarians uh, are just, yeah. yeah, how do, anyway. Um, on the issue you've raised, it's probably your hottest button biggest generator of hate and conservatives, right-wing people who go, oh, Campbell, Newman, um, is the the Vlad laws. Um, not, not conservatives. That's, no, no, that's where, the, that's where, that's where it comes from, libertarians. Well, there's a heck of a lot of people who are like libertarian. Maybe libertarians mm. are like that. That was, that was big government. That was oppressive, uh, ruthless... And vindictive. There was, you know, two old grannies associating and going to a pub together, and and you know, three three mates having mm. a, a beer together and going to jail. Um, so I don't. Know, I guess let's talk in in two minutes, no more. Uh, regrets and pride. Uh, well, points for, well, in well, that. Well, firstly, there was um, a riot on the Gold Coast on a Saturday night in a public place, scaring women and children. Uh, and, and you know, mums and dads and uh, the people who perpetrated that took on the police, then went to a police station and essentially laid siege to it and demanded that uh, people, uh, their, their, their fellow offend, you know, the, you know, their fellow uh, comrades were, were, would be released. So a tough stand had to be taken and indeed you know, left-wing commentators urged me and the government to take strong action. The laws were developed by one Walter Sofronoff, who was then the Solicitor General, is now 
the president of the Court of Appeal, uh, and I don't think he's a, a right winger either. And he wasn't asked to develop them. He actually, of his own volition, came up with these laws hmm. and came to the then Attorney General, Jared Blay, and said, this is the solution. This is how you deal with this. Um, so I make those important points about why and how. As to uh, my reflections on that, I frankly think they were unnecessary. And the last the two years, yeah, and the last two years of COVID have also, you know, probably heightened my awareness of um, the perils of giving bureaucrats and police too much power because they were misused and they annoyed a lot of people who just wanted to go and ride their motorbikes uh, on a on a Saturday afternoon. So that's a big that, walk back for you. Well, and no, I've said it before, and quite a few times actually in the last uh, twelve months. And, and for and, anybody and, that's yeah. watching, I. Well, for everybody that's watching, of course, um, nobody else is going to be hearing it. Um, I think we need politicians who are capable of learning and not pretending like they've never never made a mistake and going, you know what, I've evolved in my thinking and I was adamant at the time and I was also wrong at the time and I wouldn't do it the same again. So if you're capable of that, then, then that's brownie points to me. Well, I am saying that I don't think the laws were necessary. So just to, to cap that off, what we should have done is simply um, insisted that the police do their job using the existing laws. Plenty of laws on the statute books. Um, you know, frankly, the police are scared of the criminal motorcycle gangs. They're scared of them. And they're back in business in Queensland today and it's because, the, because the police won't, won't actually use the laws effectively and go after them in a comprehensive and consistent way. Interesting. And yeah, so, so so it's not the Labor Party's fault. Well, it is the Labor Party's fault because they're the government. They're but the if, government, the, if, they're the laws, the government. if the laws were already in place, changing the laws isn't the laws. What I'm saying to you is, you, you've made the point to me about the criticisms of the laws. Mm. I'm saying I agree that the the criticisms are probably valid, given what we've seen about overreach, given what we've seen in in Victoria, where where the police have acted just terribly. And you didn't terribly. hear that at the time? This is predictably going to be abused sometime oh, it was, in the it was criticised at the time, but the, the, the position that was served up was, to me as Premier, was you need these laws to deal with this situation. Mm. Okay, And I just don't think that was the case. I think what was required is what I did as well, which was I literally got the police commissioner in and said, you know, you have to deal with this and your job's on the line. Mm. And that's... What should happen today if we, you know, that's if we want to deal with it. So this is why I go back to the hypocrisy. You know, we, you know, at the time, so many people in the community, particularly left-wingers, said, you know, said, uh, well, I'll start again. They, so many people in the community, left-wingers, rallied to the defence of criminals. I mean, it's just preposterous. Mm. You know, like <clears throat> we had, we had people literally fighting the good fight for people who manufacture drugs and distribute them and cause this misery in our community. So this is why I'm saying this is what I'm saying about it. It's like, do we believe in a prohibition of drugs or not? Mm. If we believe in a prohibition of drugs, you know, one way you can go is to take firm, decisive action. The police know who they are. They know where they are. They know they have all the intelligence. Why aren't they dealing with them? If and, and that way, and you can deal with them. Are the and courts we show in, that. Are the court, would, they blame, would the police blame the courts for lack of prospect of successful conviction? Well, we could come back to that in a sec. The other way we can go is we can say, listen, prohibition doesn't work. We've actually 
created the business model by having prohibition. Mm. Yeah, if you think fair. about that for a sec, yep. the reason the reason they have a business model is because we have we have a, a you know a zero tolerance for drugs policy. So instead of instead of um, people being able to buy safe legal drugs, I, I know people were rep- um, sort of you know, recoiling yeah, recoiling at that. But instead of that, people are buying. Anyone who wants to buy drugs is out there buying them now, and those drugs are, are being made in. In, in backyards and in industrial precincts and by people who never passed high school. <laughs> so yeah. I, I guess I'm just putting the these are the, these are the left and right of the, the the situation in terms of how you how you can approach these things. Yeah. So if let's stop being hypocrites and actually say what we want to do here um, on on the issue of the courts. Um, well, here in Queensland, the the, you know, the Labor Party have been in charge. Uh, from 1989 through to 2022, all but um, about five years they've been in charge. They've appointed the judges, the magistrates. They've created most of the laws. They've created the, you know, the the the, the system. They stand accountable. Yeah. They stand accountable. And if, if the system's fair. not performing. Yeah. Um, let's talk about another issue that a lot of people are going to be put off the Lib Dems mm. by. A lot of my viewers. Um, which is a segment um, necessarily not reflective of the broader population, but uh, that's abortion. Um, it is a federal issue because Tanya Plibersek made it a federal campaign issue at the last federal election, mm. uh, and thank goodness she lost uh, and her policies didn't get up uh, along with Bill Shorten. But um, she wanted it to be cheaper uh, and more abortion clinics built and to spread the service, make it easier for uh, women in regional and, and outback communities. Of course, it's the Labor Party that deprives maternity services, um, all of them, including ultrasounds and other things, um, pre, uh, I can't remember the right word, but the, the pre-maternity services uh, from those areas. And this is essentially something that goes with it. But abortion, the classic libertarian issue is uh, the argument of bodily autonomy. You get to do what, what you want with your body. Um, but I, I guess I want to put to you two things that I think libertarians should be concerned. Libertarians, uh, authentic libertarians should be concerned about. One is the fact that there is a new Australian from the moment of fertilisation, from the moment of conception. They're biologically indisputably is a new living human there that deserves the same consideration as every other citizen under a libertarian government, that we're there to protect that person's rights. Uh, And secondly, that even if I lose that point, my money shouldn't be taken as a taxpayer to subsidise that which violates my conscience. Mm, Okay. Well, those two important points. I guess my, why don't I just simply state my position? Well, well let's, I, let's I, take I, your I personal have, position. Yeah, well, my, my position is this, <clears throat> is, that, is that, you know, women should be able to get an abortion. But, for example, the laws that were brought in here in Queensland by, you know, Palaszczuk and Trad a few years ago are just absolute anathema to me. Late-term abortion is, is hideous. And the point that you were making is, is, is well made, that first point, in that, there's actually two people involved here. Yeah. It's not. It's not just the woman 
it's not the mother, just the mother, it's the unborn child. And so, you know, there's, there's nine months of, of the progression of a fetus. There's a, there is a point, I believe, where, you know, we've gone too far. Now, I'm not, I'm not professing to be an expert there, I'll just say that where we are now is hideous. Yeah. And it, it's wrong. And Just a little yeah. interjection. For those people uh, watching at home, I, I'm not going to debate this issue. My, the purpose of this interview isn't to change Campbell's mind. It's actually just to pose the position and, and let him explain mm. it, his position to you. So, yeah. so, so I, I believe that they're that, 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 that hideous laws and I just reflect on how awful it was to see people in the parliament then cheering and applauding. And, uh, right. uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was repugnant as well. So yeah, I think then you know you, we've we've talked about George Christensen. Um, you know, one of the things that George has made is the you know the, he's made a number of important points about this as well. The Born Alive Children yeah, Protection Act. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you would yeah, have supported that bill? Yeah, I think I would have actually. And I, I would say as well to you that you know I make this important point. It, it, to, to really underline how I feel. That's really important yeah. for us choosing a federal senator to know that. If George's bill had got to the Senate, you would have been behind it. Mm, I believe, from from what I've heard about it, yeah, I, I'm you know, I'm going to be upfront here. I, I haven't seen the, the essence of it is detail, that a child but, born alive, yeah. once outside the mm. womb, no matter how they got there, if it was the result of of mm. uh, natural consequences or a abortion procedure, mm. that that child should be treated the same, regardless. You know, mm. outside the mother's body, you get. All the primary care that any other child mm. would. That's um, the way I understood. If it. it's medically indicated. Yeah, that, that's the way I understood it. And mm. and and just amplifying this thing, I, I find it uh, just just amazing that our society, on one hand, is so busy doing everything we can to save preemie babies, mm. right? But me, so so there's there's babies who are wanted and loved. We're doing everything we can, putting huge resources into saving. Children mm. who once upon a time would have died. However, Correct. over here, where we've got we've got another situation where we say it's okay to abort children at about the same stage of development, and that's that's particularly for me uh, the reason why this is so bad. In terms of the the fun, you know the, the the cost of the funding of that, well, that's <laughs> I guess that's a that's a bit more problematic for me. I I, I probably believe that. Uh, you know, ultimately, yes, the, the, the system should should be paying. And, you know, if you say that's wrong, well, there are many there are many cases of all where, where money is spent on things that in medical in the in the in the world of medical procedures where I would I would question whether we should be paying for now anyway. For example, um, but I know as a fact that people in the ADF um, are, are getting sort of Correct. That shouldn't be subsidised. So, Gender reassignment surgery. Yeah, and all this sort of stuff. So mm. why, why is that under the system? So, but I, I think early term abortions for for the right but reasons. Let me put it to you are, as a are, as a moral equivalency. Yeah, yeah. Um, tax and, and and I think this is a strong yeah. a strong chink to attack in the libertarian a strong inconsistency in libertarian thinking to attack. If you want to be libertarian, mm. surely we must believe in the taxpayer's right, moral right, to not subsidise that which violates his, his own conscience. So as a moral equivalence, I would say um, treating a unborn child as a piece of property instead of as a person is equivalent to slavery. And to 
ask me to then subsidize that is morally equivalent to asking me to give a business owner a tax deduction for the purchase of somebody, of a slave. Mm. But, but, but I, I don't know where you, I guess this is where, where do you draw the line though, David? It's like, there are so many things in our society today that I have to, like I'm on, a, I'm on a good wicket, so I pay relatively high rates of tax, and I'm paying for all sorts of things yeah. that I can't abide. Whether it be, whether it be the funding of, you know, in this state of, uh, this state government gives, gives, gives money to environment, radical environmental groups who, who uh, adopt an agenda that is against what I believe is the, the, the interests of the whole community. Um, you know, I, we, you, you mentioned gender assignment yeah, your in point the military. Is, your point is well made. That, that, and that's, my that's, answer that's is... That's the condition of being... My, that, that's the condition of My answer of to your question or to your response is that the fact that you were not able maybe to definitively define the line ultimately isn't really an excuse on not moving the line. And I think we can move the line beyond a lot of these things. No taxpayers shouldn't be subsidising gender reassignment surgery for anybody. Uh, and no taxpayers shouldn't be subsidising the taking, the deliberate taking of, of another living person's life in an abortion clinic. If you want that and, and somehow the laws permit mm. that, well, that's fine. But surely the line should stop at asking me to pay for you to have that. Uh, that very morally, de uh, at I, the very least, can we all concede that's morally debatable and therefore not no, fair look, to ask I, anybody I think, to subsidise? I'm prepared to think about your point. I, I probably today, to be again upfront about it, say that I not no, there I yet. I don't. I, I'm not there, mm. but I do have to again insist that you know, like we could, if with with a, with a bit of time, we could come up with a hundred examples. Of things that you know that you or I don't agree with that we're paying for right now as taxpayers. Well, let's make it uh, Lib Dem <laughs> so, policy to stop subsidising them the hundred things. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> that that that's that's something we want to do anyway because we well, I mean, if I could just get this in, I mean, that's why we want lower taxes and we we, we want yeah. less less sort of subsidy to families and the like. We want people to get their tax. They're, I want to come to the non-controversial the ones, yeah. the, the really yeah. the really good policies that I endorse mm. and will be supporting Lib Dem candidates for. Um, to That's not a bias. That's the result of this election examining the alternatives. Um, I, I guess just to draw a line under the abortion issue, mm -hmm. where is the line for you where you say, okay, we'll, we'll let you do that even if I don't like it, and no, you can't. Where's the line for you? Is it medical viability um, or, or some other point? Because you're yeah. against late-term abortion yeah. Yeah. and you're for early-term. So are you first trimester, second trimester, or as the uh, line of David, science moves, you'll move with that? David, I, I think it's about a, a viable human being, but I think it's got to be well before that. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I do have a, I, I do have a real problem with people, you know, going well into their pregnancy mm. um, and then making a decision like this. And, you know, like... I, I, like so I the want, definition like I want, of well, viability is well, more than 50% chance of surviving outside mm, the womb. Mm, yeah. David, I don't know enough about the details of this particular aspect. Mm. I just simply say to you that if, 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 a, if, a, if a child um, that, that is, is, is in the... Is in the womb that is well and truly on the way to being viable is is being aborted. That's terrible. 
Um, you know, mm. I, I really do. But I mean, you know, in the first week since, you know, since conception, well, I don't have a problem with that. The first month, I don't have a problem with that. And, but those, that's when, you know, that's when a woman who doesn't want to have that child um, should be making the decisions. And I think that's really important. Now, I, I get told by people that, you know, there are re good reasons for not. Uh, well, I, well, when I know only too well about what's entailed in, in aborting a late-term child, it's hideous. Again, I just want your viewers to understand that. But, it, you know, where you draw the line, well, it's not where it is here in Queensland today. That's probably the best way I can answer that. Yeah, yeah. you wouldn't have passed those laws. Cool. Well, there's a lot more to say on that, but mm. not, uh, we don't have the time for this purpose. Um, let's talk about the, the good stuff, uh, or even we'll start with the controversial stuff mm. that I applaud. Um, freezing or eliminating minimum wages? Um, is it in, in your party manifesto? Yeah. Um, explain that to the local blue-collar worker who thinks minimum wages are the backbone of fairness to... Uh, employment in yeah. Australia. Well, well, minimum wages mean people don't get employed um, and, you know, particularly uh, keep a whole lot of young people who want casual work out of the workforce. And they also, it also means higher, higher costs of goods and services for all of us. You know, deregulation of the labour market is very important to actually, you know, get this country going. Uh, but what we're saying, though, remember, is that you get lower taxes as well. So what happens in this country is we entrench you know, minimum sort of provisions like this, but then people start getting taxed almost immediately at relatively high rates. That's of an tax. interesting point. Yeah. So we're, we're saying that you would not pay any tax until you earn $40,000. Which is effectively a pay rise. And then only 20 cents in the dollar. Yeah. Okay, so tax free mm. threshold going up a whole lot. Mm. Uh, and then you want to flatten all tax brackets yep. to the one. Mm. Um, so why is that? What does that mean? Well, it means that people have the most incredible incentive to actually work hard for themselves and their families. So it means that you can um, make that call to do that extra hour of mm. overtime. Um, and you're not going to lose. So, for example, the, the, just think, look, um, well, there are many blue-collar workers who work in mining and, and construction who are actually over $180,000 a year because they're actually quite highly paid jobs, you know, fly-in, fly-out workers and the like. So if they do an hour's overtime at, say, an iron ore mine in the Pilbara or a coal mine in, in, in uh, central Queensland, they lose basically 50 cents in the dollar. 50 cents in the dollar. That, that's a big disincentive. And so under our proposals... You have to work your first yeah. half hour for the government. Exactly. Yeah, but that's, their, that's the government's proposals at the moment. That's what, mm. that's what we do. So Australia is a highly taxed country. And what we're saying is there, there should be you know, uh, lower taxes, that people should actually have their money up front mm. and have the ability to decide how they want to spend it. To save the time in this interview episode for other topics, uh, let me just endorse that policy because what it actually does is it uh, increases your disposable income uh, f which which spreads the cost of living uh, but it also increases government revenue there is an economic principle which says that as taxes reduce to a certain point it increases revenue because people work more and effectively pay more tax because they're just earning more uh, so this is very 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 sensible economic policy uh, and one of the reasons 
this was family first policy actually with a, a lower tax-free threshold but a 20% um, tax bracket for everybody uh, companies and all individuals and um, yeah very very sensible but let's move on to another topic um, another one of your policies um, What's some of your, your favourite ones? I just... Oh, well, look, on the issue of superannuation, another one that... that talks this about is a good one because uh, Clive's got some thoughts about superannuation <laughs> here as well. Feel free to mention, well, <laughs> uh, contrast and, and compare. Well, we're just simply talking about uh, superannuation being, being uh, voluntary. So basically you can opt out of the current system. So if you want to stay in and, and put your, have your money taken out and popped into uh, a fund, fine. But if you want your money up front, you get it. Make no mistake. You know, so, does employer, the employer contribution still compulsory? No, not at all. You can actually you can actually opt out, so you get that money. So, at the moment, you know, you know, you, your employer is now taking ten percent of what you would have got, and chucking it in your fund. So, you can take that money minimum wage. Let's say uh, an admin person is making thirty dollars an hour. Uh, the employer has to pay them $30 an hour, yeah. withhold tax, and pay an extra 10% to a superannuation fund. Just to clarify how this would work in your mind, would the employer now pay them $33 an hour? Absolutely. Right, so it's not saving employers money. No, it's not saving employers money, it's giving you your money. It is, look, the point is, David, it is your money now. Right now, you know, if I'm employing you, that is, you know, on that, that the hypothetical you just said, mm. I, you're costing me $33 an hour, mm. I'm, I'm giving. When compulsory super was introduced, was it added or taken out of the amount that employers were paying well, their Well, what employees? happened back in those days, and it started a lower amount, uh, you know, this is the, you know, in the Hawke-Keating era when those mm. first kicked off. Um, basically, what was, it was, a, it was a deal with the unions in terms of the, the, the bargaining agreements at the time. Right. Essentially, it was a pay rise to people, but given through... Yeah. Through so it was know, an part added of it, cost. Part of it was through through some. Well, it was an added cost to the employer. Mm. You just never saw it. Mm. But it was it was an economic reform that was designed to actually put more money into savings and things. What like percentage that. of workers nowadays, on average, will live long enough to access their superannuation and, and enjoy it all? Well, I'm not across the actual the numbers okay. of that. But, I, but, I, I, but I was, I was but giving, I, but I, but I'd say, teeing well, you up for but, a soft well, one. Well, it's but, 50%. Well, but... 50% of people will never access their super. Well, I'm surprised a bit about that. But the, the problem as well with what's going on is this was meant to actually save you know, the federal government money. But hmm. the, the ridiculous thing is that people will have this lifetime of contributions into compulsory super. They might accrue, you know, one hundred and eighty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of, of of money in their fund. Then they retire. Uh, they pull that money out. Uh, they might pay off some bills or pay off the mortgage or whatever. But then, what happens is they then still have to um, survive. It's not enough, there, there wasn't enough money to actually retire on, so they're on the pension anyway. Hmm. So what, what we're saying is. You should be trusted to get your money up front if you want it, and you can do what you want with mm. your money throughout the course of your working life. Um, and people have many different sort of um, uh, aspirations and goals in their lives. Uh, mm. So you know, that that's that's a big one in terms of the Lib Dems philosophy. All right. Um, dare I ask you for any weaknesses in the Lib Dem 
any reasons why people you think might not want to consider them? I can't think of any at all. <laughs> well, well, well answered. I, I think. I think. Well, well, I think you've already. Well, you've already really you know, pushed me hard on say some of those social policy issues. Yeah. You know, I mean. Well, I guess I'm asking you to criticise your own party, which you yeah. probably no no good campaign is ever going to volunteer on camera. But, well, but I think you've you know, the, I think you've highlighted where some people who are you know conservative but not libertarian will have some concerns mm. and that's that's fine but you know it's like my pitch back to you though is this is honesty <laughs> you know we've had an honest conversation yeah, yeah. about these I, things I, but yeah, you can appreciate there, that. there are the most of the politicians out there and the parties out there are telling you exactly what's been focus grouped and nuancing things so that they don't get into the situation where they are telling the truth yeah. so we're putting it out there. You know, we're putting things on the table that... Oh, I think it's good strategy, for, for honestly, you. because it's the yeah. best chance of winning those undecided you know, and, and, and I'll put it a bit differently. It's like this, you know, you know one's got to be true to oneself. It's like, you know, I, you know, this, is, this, is, this is how I feel about various issues. That's why I joined the Lib Dems. You know, if, if people choose not to vote for me uh, and I'm not in, well, well I guess that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, I can cope with that. Um, rather than pretending to be something I'm That's not all we and want. getting elected. Yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah, I hope people will support me because actually another thing I, sh I should say about, you know, politicians and parties in general is, you know, politics is about comp is about compromise and, you know, just just dogmatic, this is, this is just a position we can't move from. That means actually... You don't get anywhere. There does have to be some, some give and take. So when people are watching this interview today, I'd say to them, well, look, you might, you might like A, B and C and hate D and E. My pitch is to say, well, you can still support me and we'll have to agree to disagree on D and E because I'm still going to be the better advocate for you overall. And again, the reason I would agree with that is not out of prejudice or predisposition bias, uh, but it's actually because of my commitment to issues and the best outcome for Australia. And my perspective is that those issues that Christians, conservatives like me, who have those points of difference with you, um, I think we can acknowledge that those issues are not the ones being contested that we need a champion for right now. And and if those issues come up at the next election or the election after and there's somebody seeking heinous legislation and we need a strong champion, then you might not be the guy then. But right now the issue is freedom and small government and government overreach. And I think Liberal Democrats are offering credible, um, competent champions in the space on the issues that we need to battle at this election and this time in history. Mm. Um, and. And That's an interesting way of putting it. I will always be an undecided voter and look for the man for the hour. Well, that's that's interesting perspective. And, and the other thing I'd say is that on some of these social policy issues that are controversial, it's like this, I, I'm not riding on that white horse on my charger going to the, you know, going, uh, vying for the Senate mm. because I want to actually get change on those issues. No. Like my position on drugs... Is, is is not going to be supported by by people for many many years I think in time we will have to wake up and go that way so there is absolutely no point and 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 there will be no effort upon my part of expanding energy on issues like that where mm. will I put my energy I'll put them into the things we've talked about tax and superannuation 
uh, and, and smaller government. I will be putting my energies into standing against this odious digital identity um, legislation and other uh, sort of intrusive legislation that seeks to spy on Australians and take away their rights. Those are the things that are important to me right now, David. Final question, because we're out of time. Uh, Two-part question. Uh, what is the consequence, if successful, of forcing banks to fix home loans no oh. higher than 3%? <laughs> yes. And what, second part, what is the consequence, if possible, of forcing all superannuation companies to divest their foreign investments and invest only in Australia? Mm. Well, probably deal with the latter one first. I think that um, uh, the idea of making superannuation funds invest only in Australia is, uh, is on the surface of it quite compelling and quite interesting uh, because we do have a need for um, capital to be invested in this country. However, from a risk perspective of looking after the interests of um, the actual people whose retirements are meant to being funded, you actually have to go further. That, that would be, yes, it might be good for Australia, but that money isn't for the country of Australia. That is the money for all these Australians who put their savings, albeit unwillingly, as we've sort of said, <laughs> in, into this fund. And so the people running a superannuation fund superannuation fund have a solemn duty to make sure they invest in a way that ensures those Australians get the best outcome for their dollars. So you know, to just say we're only going to invest in Australia would actually be risky. I, I know that might not seem, seem necessarily the case, but it would be actually riskier than a strategy that said we're going to invest globally in, the appro in appropriate um, um, companies and, and organisations that ultimately will give the best possible return. I mean, for example, um, if you want to be able to pay for people's pensions and retirement savings, why wouldn't you look at, for example, high growth economies? There are places like, take, let's take Indonesia. You know, there are, there are, you know, Indonesia has high growth, which means investment by Australian superannuation funds in, in, in the right sort of Indonesian companies could give better retirement incomes to Australians um, in their retirement. Whereas if you just stick it to Australia, stick to Australia, you might not be able to effectively provide for those incomes. So I don't think it's a good idea. Which creates a subsequent burden on the taxpayer yeah. to provide for them in the absence of the funds they could have got from foreign investment. Yeah, but and, and by the way though, I think there are changes that should be made to the way um, superannuation funds are measured and regulated, which would probably see more money coming into Australia and also coming into early stage companies um, uh, which, which, which are scared, are short of capital. I think, mm. I think there, there, there are certainly some arguments there at things you could do to get better investment in Australia. But a ban, if you like, or a compulsion to spend it all here, that's, that's going too far. Probably that's the, the way to finish that. Uh, in terms of um, this thing on 3% interest rates, that's diabolically dangerous. And here's <laughs> the reason why. Um, banks actually source a lot of the money they lend to us in, for our homes from overseas. And the market is the market. It's not just the, what Australia says the interest rate's going to be. I mean, right now, for example, there's a lot made of Anthony Albanese not knowing the, the official cash rate. 
which was 0.1%, still is, well, that ain't the, the base borrowing rate for people in business. It was. It was about 150, 180 days ago, but I can tell your viewers it's now about, uh, you know, I think when I last checked about 40 points, so 0.4%. It's gone up quite a bit. So people in business like me, we're paying those high interest rates right now. And that's the market working. That's the international finance market working, the Australian financial markets working. So the effect of trying to peg interest rates for home loans at 3% means things like simply there won't be as much money around for home loans. So they'll be rationed. People will have much stringer requirements for borrowing for those home loans. Um, and it, it simply is a, a complete distortion of the market. It'll actually, it'll actually hurt, hurt people who want to buy their first first home or finance refinance their home. So I think it's a bad idea. And by the way, three percent, gee whiz, um, you know, um, you know, only 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 two two to three years ago we were paying, you know, you know, three point eight, four point five in that range. It was much higher. Mm. So three percent is unnaturally low as well. I just I just just make that point. So uh, it's it's a nice it's a nice one to promise, but very unrealistic and will hurt people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate uh, your time, your honesty, and, and straightforwardness. You can guess who he's voting for, but it's only one vote, the same as anyone else's. When counting starts, it's soon obvious that there's a big swing against the government. The people have voted in one of the closest elections in Australia's history.